You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Hey, my friends, welcome to American Sex, a podcast dedicated to normalizing conversations about pleasure and alternative sexual expression by challenging those puritanical, backward ass ideals we have here in the United States. This is episode 129 of American Sex Podcast, and I am Sunny Megatron. My co-host is Ken Melvoinberg, who you'll be hearing from in just a little bit. We're both sexuality educators, pleasure advocates, and kinky perverts, too. Also, we're married. So this week, Ken and I have a conversation with Cecilia Tan. According to Susie Bright, Cecilia Tan is, quote, simply one of the most important writers, editors, and innovators in contemporary American erotic literature. Now, for over 25 years, she's been writing erotic fiction and promoting BDSM community activism. Cecilia has won many prestigious awards, both in the literary community and the leather and BDSM communities. Not only is she founder of Circlet Press, publishers of erotic science fiction and fantasy, she's also the author of many books, including the groundbreaking erotic short story collections, Black Feathers and White Flames, also the erotic BDSM romance series, Secrets of a Rockstar, and Struck by Lightning series. Her short stories have appeared in Ms. Magazine, Nerve, Best American Erotica, and many, many more places. So Ken, Cecilia, and I had a fascinating conversation about alt-sex bondage parties born from the early days of the internet. Yeah, I'm talking 1991 Usenet groups. Also, geeky convention culture. We explore how this budding online leather community went on to shape sex and kink positive culture, and also how other contributions of Gen X, you know, fandom, fan fiction, goth and post-apocalyptic culture, and a whole bunch more, shaped the world that we live in now. Also, you'll learn how Cecilia pretty much single-handedly created the now-booming erotica subgenre, sci-fi erotica. We also briefly dip into the history of tea and its relation to gender. Plus, Cecilia shares some hot flash poetry with us that she wrote in her sweaty, sweaty, tossy-turny sleep. So before we get to our conversation, you know, we've got a little bit of a uh, ball washing to do, right? That's our housekeeping, but it's more fun washing balls than cleaning the house, isn't it? First, I don't want you to miss our free Wednesday night live streams on Get Vocal. They're at 8 p.m. Pacific every single week. All you have to do is go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y, Sunny Get Vocal, spelled S-U-N-N-Y, G-E-T-V-O-K-L. You can also view recorded sessions of all of our past streams there too, but little hint, you got to be logged in and subscribe to our channel to see them, but it's free, so go ahead and sign up. Also, did you hear that we now have an American Sex Podcast Discord server, and we have grown a really caring and thriving kick-ass community there. We talk about sexuality, mental health, and off-topic stuff like recipes, funny memes, and jokes, gaming that we host every single week on the server, and a lot more. This week, 
we not only opened a Littles Playground channel, but we also opened the Playground. This is a not suitable for work 18 plus channel you can opt into where you can play sexy, share naughty selfies, and do a lot more. We'd love for you to join us, and it's absolutely free. You can get it at bit.ly slash Discord ASP for American Sex Podcast. Also, another cool thing, I am teaching two classes for sugar in Baltimore online in early June, prostate play and long distance BDSM. I'm going to put links to those classes and every single link that you hear mentioned on this podcast in the show notes at americansexpodcast.com for episode 129. So make sure to check those out. And lastly, hey, American fuckers, uh, you know what time it is, right? It's big welcome and heartfelt appreciation time to the new members of our Patreon family. Our Patreon family just continues to grow and grow. Big, huge welcome and heartfelt appreciation to the following people for becoming American Sex Podcast Patreon supporters. Thank you, Sean. And thank you, V. Seriously, from the bottom of our kinky hearts, we are so thankful for your support and the support of all of our patrons. It's a hard time right now with the pandemic and being self-employed. You know how it is. So your Patreon membership has a real direct impact on our well-being. You're like buying us dinner and putting a roof over our heads and keeping the lights on. So thank you. If you'd like to become an American Sex Podcast Patreon member too, go to patreon.com slash American Sex. And you know you get stuff, right? So you get bonus stories from our guests, extra full-length episodes, every single one of our regular episodes early, American Sex Podcast stickers sent to you in the mail, a shout-out on the podcast, also other random surprises, Patreon-only video hangouts, and a lot more. I have an off-menu bonus perk going on right now. So if you go to our Patreon page, you won't see it listed in the list of perks, but all of our $10 and up members will be joining us every Tuesday night for screenings of my TV show, Sex with Sunny Megatron. We're doing an episode every single week with a Q&A afterwards where we're going to spill all the behind the scenes tea and tell you what really went on and how we filmed it. We've got five more weeks to go and we're doing these screenings right on our Discord server. You can get the links for all of the information about that in the show notes for episode 129 at americansexpodcast.com. Okay, American fuckers, you need to settle in. And make sure you grab a cup of tea. This is mandatory. And enjoy this conversation with the legendary Cecilia Tan. Uh, we've got a very special guest with us today, Cecilia Tan. Cecilia, thank you for so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> So it's interesting. I first heard about you through uh, like short stories of yours and forgive me that I can't remember which one it was, but it was, um, I remember it was an Asimov magazine years and years and years ago. Oh, really? uh, and then, and uh -huh. then I remember hearing about a famous part. I was at Gal uh, Galaxy Con 91. Uh, -huh. uh, and I heard about this party that I missed out on. Oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> 
that, and back then uh-huh. I was a pervert, but there there was no internet. I'm, I'm about your age, so there was right. no internets back at this time. And I was a big geek. I went to Gen Con and Galaxy Con and Dragon Con and all uh-huh. these different cons. Uh, and uh, can you tell us a little bit? I, in, I think it was the is it the ASB parties? Yes, yes, ASB, which was short for Alt Sex Bondage, which in the early incarnation of the internet before there was the World Wide Web, there were these Usenet news groups, which were, you know, text-based discussion groups. And um, the thing that I thought was interesting is that alt-sex bondage, you, you, you could basically, it was kind of like the way Reddit is now, where you could start a Reddit and there would be a subreddit on a topic and people would post, you know, whatever. It used to be the whole internet, that's all there was, um, right. was Usenet. And uh, people could start a topic under, you know, alt was for alternative lifestyle, basically. And so you had whatever, alt-gay and alt-this and alt-that. And there was one called alt-sex, but it was all full of, you know, spam and, and you know, wanna fucks, as we used to call them. Um, and then there was alt-sex <laughs> bondage. And the thing that was interesting is that alt-sex bondage actually had, I think, the one of the largest subscriberships of all Usenet groups. And I remember Usenet, that could be any topic. So there was, you know, rec arts science fiction. And there was, you know, whatever, there were ones on jobs and universities and research and, you know, every topic under the entire sun that you can imagine. And alt-sex bondage had pretty much one of the highest readerships, which was fascinating because at the time, of course, bondage was super, super in the closet, um, especially for straight people. Um, Right. And (laughs) yeah. So, so yeah. So, so at Galaxicon 91 in Tewksbury, Mass, a bunch of us co-conspirators who had met through the news group just put up a sign that said ASB party and anyone who knew what ASB was would know that that was where all the kinky nerds from the internet were going to be hanging out. And we didn't advertise it as a play party because we didn't want to put pressure on people. You know, like we didn't know. 1991, we didn't know how Wait, to you were thinking about consent in, 90, in 91? What kind of an alien are you? Well, you know, we were, we, we were <laughs> part of basically the, the budding online leather community and we had learned from, you know, sort of the elders who were online because they were mostly in San Francisco, of course. Um, and, <laughs> you know, they had all the technology out there. Silicon Valley was already a thing by then, you know. So it was like uh, we had already learned about consent and this and that. But what we didn't have was a real world group. Like we didn't have a bar the way gay men had a leather bar, you know, whatever. And it's like, well, where do the, the, the pansexual nerds go? And it was like, well, we had to build it ourselves. So, yes, yeah, so we just stuck up a sign and... I still have the sign-in sheet from that, which was like we put up a big piece of paper and let people write all over it. I still have that. Of course, now I can't show Aww. it to anyone because all those people are, you know, grown up with men, like married with kids and, you know, well, actually their kids are now old enough that they could probably know about it. Um, but <laughs> um, <laughs> that was 1991. It was that long ago. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it has, so it has people's names and, and email addresses written on it and, you know, whatever and like – um, AOL addresses and stuff, you know, because and it was prodigy. Ba- what do we have? Yeah, prodigy. Exactly. Angel Choir. Yeah. Yep, yeah. Yep. GeoCities. GeoCities, oh you know, all, all that. I mean, 91, it was so long ago. It was before there were web browsers. Like that was, it was before the web as we know it now, you know, it, yeah. was, it was all, and, and like and I commend you. BBSs and stuff. So, yeah. yeah. I commend you. Cause I like poked around at the internet in the nineties. And I was like, I don't understand what's happening. How do I follow what's going on? <laughs> Who's talking about what? And I was like, fuck this. <laughs> Yeah, and now yeah, I yeah. wish I would have. Now you're all into Reddit spent every day. Some like time Ken, Ken, figuring Reddit, it Reddit. out. I could have went to the good parties. You know, I think just like finding a real, you know, a, a safe bar to hang out in, it was helpful to have somebody who kind of 
led you around or showed you the ropes. And, um, mm-hmm. but a lot of us, haha, no pun intended. Um, but a lot of us, yeah, didn't have that and just kind of had to keep opening doors and then, you know, running away when, <laughs> you know, when necessary. Um, yeah. but you know, we, we created a safe space where people could meet each other in, in real time. And, uh, and, and it started out as sort of show and tell of people's toy bags and whatever, because of course everyone had brought their things. Um, and then it, it, it quickly, you know, transpired that it, it turned into a play party. And, and I think we, we basically played until about 6am in the morning, you know, and just wow. all different people, you know, meeting each other and trying stuff out and, so many people had been like on the internet and reading about it and talking about it and dreaming about it, but hadn't actually done it, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So it was, um, or had only done it with, you know, that, that ex-boyfriend who they don't see, know anymore, but now they're, you know, whatever. And so yeah, it was, how um, many people ended up showing up? Was it a the, the, good it was, crowd? I would say, I would say a good third of the con. It wasn't that large a con. Galaxcon wasn't that big um, at that time. And it was, you know, there were, I don't know. Probably probably 90 or so people, I'm going to guess. Some of whom kind of came in and hung around and then left, and others of whom were there start to finish, you know, for the entire thing. Um, And and there's so much that we didn't know. I mean, that we now we would do differently. But I mean, by the next, very next con, which was PhilCon that November, um, a committee had been formed, bylaws had been written, a rules sheet had been created you know a a protocol was made so that people who wanted to come in could sign this consent form and then we would shred them afterward i was not in charge of that by the way um (laughs) i was in charge of making the um the clothespins that were the souvenir thing that when you signed in you got a clothespin that said philcon 91 on it i spray painted them black in my bathtub and you know (laughs) and and used silver sharpie to write the you know um yeah, I, um, in fact, I've got one sitting right here. I'm looking at it right now. I'm using it as a, as a thing that holds all my wires together. So, oh my <laughs> well, that's hilarious. That is it's funny. Still, I just realized this thing sitting right here on my desk is that, is that clothespin. So, <laughs> but yeah, we were real, we, you know, but we, I came out of sort of, you know, punk and goth culture, which is a very DIY culture and yeah. is very, you know, like somebody, you don't wait for somebody to build a thing for you. You go and find a, an, an empty lot or a basement or whatever and you, you build it yourself, you know? So, um, I was laughing about people who are like, Oh, in the pandemic, you know, who, who knew that in the post-apocalyptic universe, you know, all those people who thought we would have these, you know, fancy haircuts are wrong. And I'm like, okay, you don't understand that you don't go out and pay $500 to get a rainbow colored Mohawk. You bought 10 flavors of Kool-Aid and stole your mother's Aquanet and, you know, <laughs> so forth and so on. I mean, you know, like, I'm, I'm like, punk hairdos did not come from, we spent a lot of money to go and look like that. It's the reason it looks like that is because it's what you could do as a suburban kid with what you could steal out of the medicine cabinet at your aunt's house, you know? So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, like, that's why that post apocalyptic look <laughs> comes around, the Mad Max look, you know? So, um, and you know what? I think us Gen Xers excel at that. We were born with one foot in the dirt and one in technology, and we've had to adapt and scrape by with whatever we can, like, junk together. Exactly, exactly. So, so this, this yeah. I don't think it's affecting our generation as much as it is either, like, Gen Z, Millennials, or Boomers. Like, they're yeah. all, they yeah, seem to be much, much less adaptable because we we know how to meet somebody at a corner when we didn't have cell phones and coordinate right. a time. Right, right. And know how to build things and bake and do all sorts of stuff from scratch. <laughs> 
you know, it's, I mean, it's a very useful skill set that I thought would never come in handy. Like yeah. and now we're yeah. like, you know, I'm like a Call of Cthulhu character that I designed to play a game with at this point. <laughs> Speaking of which, let's let's talk a little bit about geekery here. So pretty soon, I hope to have the whole the holy trifecta of uh, Midori, you and Laura Antony all <laughs> on our show at one point or another. Um, uh-huh. Because like I remember reading about Laura when I was like like so many years ago when she was like an editor for a Dungeons and Dragons magazine yes. in the late 70s or early yep, 80s. Yep, yep. But with you, I want to talk a little bit about your um, erotica that you have written as anthology. Specifically, let's take a look at like the Magic University series, Silk Threads, The Princess Boy, Struck by Lightning, and... Uh, so on and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so it all started, okay, back in those days of alt-sex bondage in, you know, in 1991, uh, one of the things I did, so I always wanted to be a science fiction writer. I knew when I was growing up, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be the next, like, Roger Zelazny or uh, Anne McCaffrey or, you know, whoever all the people I read when I was growing up. And um, I, uh, and I got out of college, moved to Boston to, for a job in book publishing because I thought, well, that'll be useful to know how book publishing works if I'm going to be a writer. Um, and I, uh, and I sat down to write some stories, you know, and you're supposed to, that was back in the days when you had to like mail off a self-addressed stamped envelope to get the writer's guidelines oh, of the magazine. Yeah. Oh. And then you, then you <laughs> went done that. and printed out your story or typed it on, you know, t- typewriter and then mailed it to the, I mean, this is like the dark ages we had, it was just one step up from using stone chisels and, you know, um, and, uh, and I sat down and wrote, I tried to write a story every week between Christmas and, and New Year's for some reason. Like I thought that was a good, like a good test of how, my professionalism. I don't know how, where I got this whacked out idea that I should try to write a story a week. I probably read some, you know, some memoir or something by some writer who did it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try to do it. And one of those stories was this kinky erotic science fiction story called telepaths don't need safe words that I quickly realized I could not even submit anywhere because uh, all of the places that took erotica out of the thousands of places that were listed in writer's market and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, the places that you go to find the names of magazines and, you know, um, none of the places that took erotica would take science fiction. And none of the places that would take science fiction would take erotica. There was zero crossover. And I'm like, that is weird. Like, that is just weird. And, but remember, this is before, before nerds took over the world and, you know, all that. But, um, I just thought, this is so strange, you know, and what kind of things must they have been getting that they, you know, (laughs) that, that it's on the banned list, you know, like a lot of these erotica places would be like, you know, like no religious figure, no blaspheming religious figures because you can literally get, you know, your, offices burned down for that you know no underage you know or bestiality because you can just get raided by the law for that and and no science fiction i'm like why (laughs) you know like why what are you afraid of and i was you know didn't you all see revenge of the nerds you know and um you know the famous line from revenge of the nerds is that you know the reason that the nerds are actually good at sex as opposed to the jocks who actually get all the girls is because jocks spend all their time thinking about sports and nerds spend all their time thinking about sex (laughs) so you know um and you know and your brain is the largest sexual organ in your body i I, I must tell you so um so i wrote the story could not send it to a publisher um and you know i come from this diy background right and i was just like fine i'm putting it out on the internet which at that time was just usenet i posted it it was it's only a five thousand word short story i had to post it in four sections because that's how (laughs) 
You know, like, it it was considered rude to put, like, over 2,000 words in one post because it would, like, overflow people's buffers. I'm not kidding. Uh, Now I can send people a text longer than that. I mean, you know. But, uh, yeah, so I I put it out there, and then and the reaction I got was just overwhelmingly positive. People just like, that is the best erotic story I've ever read. It's the best BDSM story I've ever read. By the way, can you help me with my personal problems? You know, et cetera. Because people immediately thought that I must be some kind of expert at BDSM relationships and and technique (laughs) and everything. From having read this fiction story, I'm like, you do realize that this story is fiction. It takes place on another planet. and, And I'm, you know... 22 <laughs> you know, or whatever actually maybe it was 24 by then um math is not my strong suit so um i'm good at the letters not the numbers um so you know so i married somebody who was good at the, at the numbers you know that's how it works out yeah. but um yep. yeah so so he and i actually then started a publishing company um called circlet press which was basically to be the publisher that would do both erotica and science fiction in a single publication you know like a, because there wasn't another one like there literally was zero other places that we i could send the story to so i self-published it um in it, with two other stories in a chapbook and then you know uh quickly published another chapbook by another writer who i was a personal friend of mine who also was in the same city as me and who also in fact helped introduce me to my husband and you know so forth um but you know just yeah i don't know um one of those things where like it all sort of came together at once and you know she and i and he were all at a play party which was basically the same people who had been at that gay lexicon party and then they were like well now we feel comfortable enough to throw a party in our house it was also out in the burbs and so like we went out there and i it, i i met corwin and it was love at first sight basically and um it was just one of those things and so then Aww. you know he was like yeah i'm good at the numbers i'll do all the the accounting stuff he got a degree from mit in math i mean so you know that doesn't necessarily mean you're a good accountant but he was like yeah Yeah. so he did he he did the numbers i did the letters which was 90 percent of the publishing work you know and um and we just started a publishing house i wasn't working in book publishing so i'm like all right let's do this thing and um you know here we are 28 years later and um almost every other queer or erotic press that started around then or even in the you know in the 80s um till now almost all of them are gone like uh, most of them have not survived there have been several die-offs in book publishing as you know first the independent bookstores were dying then amazon came now the chain stores are dying next amazon is you know now saying they're going to stop shipping books because they're not a a essential service i i was like what (laughs) you're like you're like what earth's biggest bookstore tm which used to be their tagline right all of a sudden they're like yeah now books are not so important to us now that we've destroyed the book industry books are not that important to us anymore Mm -hmm. and just like oh my god but you know we live on so um you know (laughs) so i I had a question for you and i just thought about this um like back in the the 80s and into the early 90s i was very involved in like independent zine culture Uh uh like uh, like zine magazines but they were very unpolished, not professional. They were the punk rock of literature mm-hmm. at that time. Did yeah. you have anything to do with that whole movement? Well, what's interesting is that when I started publishing the chat books, um, I probably would have started a zine, which would have grown into a magazine eventually, um, if I had not already been in book publishing as my day job. So I knew the ins and outs of the book distribution and retail system, and I really didn't know magazines at all. Um 
And, you know, and I think that was really what made that everyone else was starting a zine when I started my publishing company. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and yeah, and, and the, the original publications, I mean, the original telepaths don't need safe words was I literally snuck the photocopies at my job, you know, my day job mm-hmm. in book publishing. I took one page a day down to the photocopier and ran off a hundred copies and then brought it back up to my desk, you know, <gasps> and whatnot. And then I sat on the floor of my apartment in the Fenway of Boston, I bought a big stapler you know, for $11. And, you know, and then I did the covers, I got the covers done at, you know, Copy Cop or Kinko's or one of those places, right? And for like another $11. And then I hand stapled them, you know, and, and then I brought, I did 100 copies, I brought them to a science fiction convention, and I had sold them all by the by the within the first 24 hours. And it was like, people were chasing me down in the hallway, being like, I hear you have a book. <laughs> and, like, you know, and I would be, I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm out of them. You know, can I take your address and, you know, mail you a catalog, and, you know, et cetera. And it was just like, it was one of those things where it was like, why was I the one, the only one who opened the door between those two worlds? I don't know. It just like no one else had done it. Everyone else had been told, no, you can't do that. And they went along with it. And I just didn't go along with it. So, yeah. um, you know, and since then we've published, I don't know, I've lost count, uh, you know, over 200 books, you know, many, many, many erotica anthologies, um, you know, n- and we eventually moved into uh, sort of romance novels and whatnot. Because the romance was very, very straight laced, you know, in every sense of the word back in 91. Paranormal romance mm-hmm. didn't exist yet. It's like there were sort of like the Anne Rice vampire books, which are, first of all, not romance and really not what we would call paranormal romance today. Um, you know, they were their own thing, but they were kind of like the only touchstone people had. And then people also knew that she wrote the beauty series, you know, which of right. course was this extremely seminal, you know, kinky fantasy series. But it was like, people looked at that as like, oh, well, but that's the only possible example. And I was like, are you nuts? <laughs> you know, like, like, why would that be when every other thing, you know, spawns a million copycats in publishing and this, you're just like, no, no, we're just going to publish this one thing and there will never be other books like it. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's not how the industry works, but anything that had to do with sex was like people just lost their minds. Like they couldn't even talk about it. It was, it was strange. And, you know, yeah. and like science fiction was like this, weird side corner of publishing that was like, well, that's not real publishing. That's some kind of, I don't know what those guys do, you know? And it was like, you know, they're one of the best selling genres out there, you know, just, I don't, I don't know. It was, it was weird. But remember that was back before also, before all the blockbuster movies were science fiction and fantasy movies. And before all, you know, it was like nerds had not yet taken over the world. So, um, you know, it it was pretty, it was pre Marvel universe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was like star Wars had happened and was in the past and there was no, not yet talk that there would be these prequels and sequels and, you know, so forth. Right. And it was like star Trek had only just been brought back onto TV. Right. And was it 89 that, that, uh, or 90 so. that, that next generation yeah. comes back and people are like whoa what a concept you know that like you've got this intellectual property and people might still be interested in it and why did they get why did it get revived because slash fan fiction had kept it alive <laughs> like ah. it was literally women writing kirk spock boinking. kirk spock slashies yeah. yes uh, that had, first of all, kept the fandom alive and kept the show on the air the first time when it was almost canceled 
you know, during its original run, and then were the ones who kept the flames burning. But like, nobody wanted to talk about that, because of course, it must be a dirty secret that, you know, and it's like, my whole attitude has always been like, other people's dirty secrets are just, you know, uh, it, that's it's their problem if they want to keep it a secret, you know, it's not my thing. So, you know, I don't, yeah. I don't keep too many secrets, because it's too difficult. How do you keep track? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. I can't remember what I'm supposed to tell people and not tell people. I just tell people everything. It's simpler. <laughs> yeah. So for you, like looking back, what changed or when did it change? When did these things start becoming more mainstream and why do you think? I think it was inevitable that, first of all, Generation X starts to take over the media is the first thing that happens. Um, and, you know, I like, our, do you remember... There was this one month where like five, four or five things happened to me that were all like, oh my gosh, it's clear that our generation is now starting to be in charge of the media. And it was like, um, Ellen came out on, Mm -hmm. you know, Ellen's character came out, first of all, on her show at the same time that Ellen came out in real life. And not like, like, think about how weird that is kind of, but that's it. Like the Gen X is the first generation that really gets to do metafiction. And kind of like this crossover between what's real and what's not and, you know, whatnot. It's like, I think it's sort of at the core of everything we do. Um, you know, so it's like Ellen came out on her show and on Time magazine, you know, in the cover of Time at the same time. Um, uh, Gross Point Blank, the uh, John Cusack assassin movie came okay. out, um, which is another one of these like, it's John Cusack you know, as this, this, you know, contract killer going back to his high school uh, reunion um, in Gross Point, Michigan. And of course, he's exactly my age, you know, and so forth. And it was like, you know, the, the whole having to go back to all the people you knew in the 80s, you know, whatever. Um, And then uh, it was the same week that like, I first saw the, the car commercial that used da, 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 as the music. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah. And it was it was like the Volkswagen Beetle, I think, you know, the new Beetle, yeah. right? And I was just like, that's it. We're in charge now. You know, like it's happened. Wow. I think that was 98. And I was and so okay. it was like from 91 to 98 was like this, you know, Bill Clinton was in the White House and it was like and Gen X were all out there basically being workaholics. You know, I, I later read a thing, yep. I, it was in time, that said that um, so there was a recession at the beginning of the Clinton presidency, um, and that the thing that kept the recession from being as bad as people thought it was, was that Generation X worked ourselves to death. Because we didn't, mm. we had, here we had, we had been the first generation that grew up being told, find a job that you love, not a job that just is stable or just because it makes you money or because it makes your parents happy. You go out and do your passion. So, of course, we were all workaholics who went into industries and, you know, whatever, where we were just like, yeah, this is great. And then the thing that is sad is that then now it's happening to, you know, sort of, you know, late millennials and Gen Z all over again as they're breaking into tech and, you know, whatever, and suddenly being told, oh, yeah, we have Nerf fights every Friday at 3 p.m., um, but we're cutting your hours so you don't get health insurance. I mean, you know, like, you know, yeah. yeah. So yeah, um, I'm like, we weren't supposed to do that. But of course, Gen X is still not in charge of all the money. We're in charge of all the, the image of everything, but it's still boomers who are in charge of all the money. So this is, you know, but to get mm-hmm. back to sex, um, <laughs> 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 uh, 
you know, at, during that period of the 90s is also like a, just a huge period of, of sexual liberation. Um, you know, it's the it's the uh, it's what comes of the whole silence equals death, you know, um, and queer nation movements, which I was also a big part of. Um, you know, that it's like, no, we're not going to be in the closet anymore. And, you know, that, that this is this whole, like, you know, repression of what, who you are and what you feel is really, uh, fucked up an entire generation before us, you know, that the whole post-war, you know, way of doing things is not how we do things, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, so, so we don't sex that way either, or we do have a lot of the same sex, but we don't keep it in the closet. We don't keep it a secret. And we don't keep it as much a secret anyway, you know, I mean, so one of the big things I did in the mid nineties was I started the fetish flea markets because I wanted a way to literally for political reasons to get everybody who was kinky together in one room. You know, my idea was we've got, you know, like we've got lesbian bike clubs and we've got gay men's leather contest, you know, sash wearing you know, guys, and we've got the, and we've got like spankers, and we've got like these suburban couples who have their like spanking camps, and we've got, you know, pony people, and we've got, you know, and we've got goths, and we've got, you know, sort of industrial, and we've got, you know, all these different things, and we've got college students, and we've got all these different folks. But if we're going to have any political power, we need to be able to all see what's common among us. And I thought, right. well, the thing that's most common among us is that we all need to shop. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, you know, that's back brilliant. then you couldn't go into Target and buy sex toys. You know, you couldn't you couldn't order a flogger online because online didn't exist yet. You know, you were still mailing off for catalogs and you know whatnot like that. And um, and you didn't. Nobody wants to. Well, maybe they do now, but I don't know. Nobody wants to buy a corset you know, an expensive, nice corset, you know, like through the mail. It's like, you've got to try it on and have it fitted to you right. and, you know, all that kind of thing. So, you know, I, I knew, uh, you know, two dozen crafters and, you know, m- makers here in the, uh, you know, in the Boston area. And I said, well, let's have a flea market, you know, just everybody pays like 50 bucks for a table and, you know, and, and the local chapter of the national leather association will collect the money at the door and because I was in the NLA and they were they were constantly complaining that they didn't have any money. And they were like, we'd be mm. more politically active if we had more money. And this is back when to get the newsletter out to membership, somebody had to like sneak the photocopies at their job. Right. <laughs> you know? And I was like, right, wouldn't it be right. simpler if we just had a budget where there was some money where you could just pay a place to photocopy it for you, you know, and so forth. And you could pay the postage and we could, you know, this, that and the other. And we could buy envelopes instead of, you know, yeah, somebody having to uh, cross out the company you know, address on them and stick her over it you know, or whatever, you know, because that's the kind of thing that we did in the early days. Right. And um, so, yeah. you know, I was like, you guys stand at the door with, a, you know, a, a bag and just collect two dollars from every person who comes in and I'll handle the vendors. And, you know, um, and we had like, I don't know, 300 people came to that first one. I had 14 vendors, you know, the fee that I collected from them paid to rent the hotel ballroom. And like and that was it. It was super simple. Um, and then we did them like that for, you know, twice a year for, I don't know, many, many years. And then it, it grew and grew and grew till we were eventually, we outgrew the Boston Center for the Arts, which is a big exhibition center here in Boston. We moved to the Bayside Expo Center. Then the Bayside Expo Center tried to get rid of us because they thought we were running a prostitution ring. Um, oh, no. And, uh, and we were not, in fact, running a prostitution ring. What was happening was a a play party had gotten um, busted up by cops in Attleboro, Massachusetts. 
um, because I think they thought they were going to find a rave or something going on and that there would be drugs and ecstasy. And instead, they found a bunch of middle-aged couples in funny outfits. Um, <laughs> and, then they, and then they didn't know what to do. So they resorted to the tactics they used to do when they would like raid a gay bar in the 1950s where they like took everybody's driver's licenses so you couldn't leave and then they confiscated everybody's toy bags and by the next day i think the cops began to realize this was all a monumental mistake but they couldn't undo it and um and like members of the community started getting like random phone calls being like do you have stuff at the police station please come get it you know, and we were like, oh, no, 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 no. You think you're getting out of this that easily. And plus, there was some assistant DA who thought he was going to, I don't know, make his political career by proving that he was going to clean up the streets of Attleboro. Or I don't know what he thought he was going to do. But it was like, look, these are well-to-do, middle-aged heterosexuals, you know, who, um, right. who in fact, have a lot of political clout. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so we... We raised the money for the, you know, the, the legal defense for the guy who ran the party and the people who were being charged with what they were charging one woman with assault uh, with a dangerous weapon because she had spanked another woman with a wooden spoon. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So y- you can Google Paddleboro to find the details <laughs> about this case because <laughs> that's what, we, the that's what we, sure. we renamed it Paddleboro. So, yeah, they, they, this, 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 these were the good old days of, of leather activism. <laughs> you know? was, wow. But, you know, this was the thing. It's like people, if you still at that time, you could get your you could get your kids taken away. You know, if your ex wanted to put you into family court, you could, you know, you could you could be discriminated against in all kinds of ways. And that's still happening, but not as much because now we live in the post Fifty Shades of Grey world, you know, and um, and people no longer say BDSM, what's that? Right. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, so things have changed drastically since the late 90s. Um, but, yeah, you know, and what a surprise. You know, not again a surprise that the Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon comes out of that sort of fanfic universe, right? That fanfic right. world where people are just digging into all the good stuff that's going on in the, you know, in, in their imagination, in, the, in their id, in, the, in you know, in their... You know, sort of what's in their, their, I don't know, what scratches their background itch. You know what I mean? Right, right. So, you know, yeah. that's always what makes fanfic run. And, uh, and gee, those are the passions that ultimately basically make human culture run, as far as I'm concerned. Hi, I'm Cam Poder. And I'm Karen Lee Poder. And we host the Sex Talk with My Mom podcast. We are excited to answer the Pleasure Podcast's question of the month. What is our number one sex tip for quarantine? Mom, what's yours? I like the idea of Zoom sex with other people. What? What are you making a face for? Have you done that? As a matter of fact, yes, I have. No, you have not. Yes, I have. You and I'm had not gonna Zoom sh- sex? Yes. With who? We're not going to get into this right now. There's only 30 second clip. Oh my God. Do you want to hear more from my mother about her sex life? Do you want to hear more from my son about his sex life or lack thereof? Thank you. Check out the Sex Talk with My Mom podcast. The flowers are blooming and the grass is growing. It is time to mow your lawn. And thanks to our sponsor, Manscaped, you can trim the hedges below the belt safely and efficiently. Yep, I'm talking about ball trimmers. Now, wait, wait, wait. I know what you're doing. You're like, uh, you know, I'm home for a while. Let's let the weeds grow out of control while I lay on the couch and watch some more Netflix. Well, just like mom always said to wear clean underwear, I'm saying... 
always keep that garden tidy. You never know when an invitation to a Zoom orgy is going to pop up or when you're going to get a nude photo swap request. Get some stuff from Manscaped Stat. They have forever changed the grooming game with their Perfect Package 3.0 kit. It comes with the Essential Lawnmower 3.0, which is a waterproof, cordless body trimmer, and you'll also get a ton of other liquid formulations to round out your manscaping routine. Inside the Perfect Package, you're going to find the Manscaped Crop Preserver, which is an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. And when you subscribe to the Perfect Package, you're going to get a new replacement blade refill for your lawnmower trimmer delivered to your door every three months. And there's more for a limited time. Subscribers get two free gifts. The Shed Travel Bag, worth $39, and the patented high-performance reduced chafing Manscaped Boxer Briefs. And on top of all that, you're going to get 20% off and free shipping using the code SUNNY, S-U-N-N-Y, at manscaped.com. Yep, 20% off, free shipping, all the other stuff I talked about at M-A-N-S-C-A-P-E-D.com with the code SUNNY. So not only have I been a fan for a long time, but I noticed that you hopped on one of our live streams. I think it was last week or yeah. the week before. And you tinkled in your pants. And I tinkled in my pants. Yeah. And uh, like Midori <laughs> was there. And then we talked to Midori the next day. And I told her that I had just gotten into tea. I'm diabetic now. Uh-huh. I'm not drinking Maker's Mark anymore like I used to. Uh-huh. I used to be all punk rock and goth. Yeah. Um, you know, back in the day. And so now I'm getting into tea. And she told me she would totally judge me by my teas. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm using one with a tea bag and it's going in a thing. And I don't know if it's the correct degree Celsius and what's going on. She goes, but if you talk to Cecilia Ten, she will tell you everything you need to know. So, so was she a liar? No. Do you no, know everything so about tea? I, I don't know everything about tea, but I am exploring tea. I, I mean, I, I've been exploring tea in much the same ways I explored sexuality. You know, um, I just came to it a little bit later also. Uh, I, I, I wrote a tea blog for quite a while. Um, tea, it was teawritings.com. And then I think I forgot to, you know, renew the domain. And so now it's in a, it's tucked in a corner of ceciliatan.com. But I, but I haven't had time to update my tea blog in, you know, well over a year. Um, maybe maybe two, three years. Um, but yeah, I, I got into tea as one of those, you know, first of all, of all the things that you can get into, right? It's like, you know, the people into wine and cheese and, you know, pasta, po- making, a, you know, pasta at home or, you know, whatever, all, all these different culinary things that you can get into. Tea is the only one that basically has almost no negative effects whatsoever. You know, it's like, it, it doesn't make you fat. Um, it doesn't make you drunk. Uh, it doesn't, uh, unlike coffee, it's really, really hard to drink too much tea. Like it doesn't make you so wired that you can't speak anymore. Um, you know, it's like, it's got all these health benefits and, and just very, very, very few negatives. And, um, you know, I, in fact, I only had one bad experience with tea and it was recently when it was, uh, like after Christmas and, you know, like we got kind of out of our, it got out of my routine and I accidentally had no tea for like three, four days in a row. And I had withdrawal. <laughs> really? I went, I went through caffeine withdrawal. Like what I, I had not realized is I had ramped up so I had been drinking more than usual, you know, like we had lots of people over and, you know, and this and that, and, you know, and plus it's Christmas and it's cold out. So we're drinking a lot of warm things. So I was just drinking like five pots of black tea a day, I think. And then, and then I just by accident didn't have any for several days. And I had such hard withdrawal that I had like migraines 
and I normally don't have migraines. So it's like I had migraine system symptoms and nausea and, you know, this and that. And I'm on the phone with a friend who has regular migraines. She's like, yeah, it really sounds like you're having a migraine. Google migraine symptoms with no migraine and see what comes up. And the number one thing that comes up is caffeine withdrawal. And I was like, how much do you yep. want to bet that I just, you know, like didn't have tea for a couple of days. And you can ramp up your tolerance for it very quickly if you are you know, just drinking a lot of it. Right. So, so it is possible to overdo tea, but it took me years to, you know, reach that point where then all of a sudden I was like, Oh wow. And then, but then to fix it, what did I do? I just had a little cup of Assam and then I was fine. So you know, yeah. I was like, Oh, okay. Not so bad after all, you know? So what is the connection between masculinity, femininity and tea? Masculinity, femininity. And just tea. So, so, so here's an interesting thing. So, you know, tea is one of those things that in Eng the English speaking world is very associated with sort of the feminine because the English, you know, afternoon tea is like one of those things that like, ladies do tea, you know, and, um, and when almost every time I've gone to like a fancy high tea, like at a fancy hotel and, you know, New Orleans or San Francisco or New York or whatever, uh, it's almost always full of women. And there's maybe one or two men in there. Um, but you know, like if men are going to go out and like for a, a little business nosh, you know, or whatever, they're going to go to a bar and have a drink, you know, or, or at least they're going to have coffee, you know, like, coffee is like this total masculine thing now and i'm like why is coffee you know like coffee and bacon are like somehow have become these masculine <laughs> foods and it's like you, yeah. you you can just see it from the way the instagram ads are marketed you know and whatever and and tea somehow has then like become this feminine thing but i think this is a very american thing to always be like well we're going to divide everything into two things and one of them has to be claimed by the men and one of them has to be claimed by the women. And it's like, why? <laughs> you know, I just don't understand this. But, you know, so it's like baseball is for men and softball is for women. Every other country, both men and women play both softball and baseball and they don't give a damn. And only in America where it's like the national pastime, it's like, uh, you know, OK, maybe don't get me started on that or I'll talk for an hour about baseball. But, um, you know, and it's like coffee and tea have suddenly taken this turn or not suddenly. I mean, it's been coming on for quite a while where it's like coffee is men and, you know, it's like dogs are men, cats are women. you know, And it's like, what, what, what? First of all, I don't give with gender essentialism all that much to begin with. And let's talk about the fact that, say, um, among the deities who are involved with tea, right? Um, you, you've had the, the tea called Ti Kuan Yin. Um, Kuan Yin is this goddess who's, she's basically a, like a bodhisattva, right? But who is, yep. is adopted by an area of China, um, it which turns out to be the area that my ancestors are from. So from Fujian. And, um, and, you know, she's the iron goddess of mercy. And we went to the temple when we went to China that is literally like a mountainside with a temple on it with a giant iron Buddha on it. And it's like, you know, like three stories tall, like, but literally iron, like you could knock on it and it's metal, right? Yeah. Um, and, but one of the things that's interesting about Quan Yin is at one point in her history, she changed gender and she was a man for a while. Um, yeah. And then more recently, you know, like in the last 200 years, she's gone back to being a goddess again. And it's like, you know, she's just like, I'm going to be what suits the moment. <laughs> you know, it's like, this, right. this moment in history, I need to be a god, I'll be a god. And then later, it's like, okay, now I can be okay, now I'll be a goddess again. So, you know, um, 
And the other thing is that the reason we have tea, of course, in the West at all is because, and especially the the, the British idea, is because of colonialism. Um, but uh, the story of how tea got to the British Isles is that there was a guy named, literally named Robert Fortune, um, who was sent by, you know, by his Victorian overlords on a spy mission to China, where he had to pretend to be Chinese and hire like underlings to tell others, you know, that he was uh, just from a different area of China where they look different and they <laughs> don't speak the dialect here. Um, and, oh, he, God. and he was, he was, he was tasked with, uh, Basically, finding out the secret of how do they grow the seedlings, how do they, you know, how do they make tea so good, and to steal 10,000 seedlings um, and ship them to India, where, of course, the British colonies were well established, and where they, they there were wild tea plants growing there, but they didn't taste good. And they were like, this, this, the Chinese have some secret, and we don't know what it is, but they knew that they had the right climate to grow tea there because these wild tea plants grew that just they didn't make good tea. So they had the plantations already set up, and he succeeds. He gets 10,000 seedlings. They're in Wardian cases, which are like these little terrariums, and they get shipped, you know, takes two years for him to, it's like this multi-year process because they had to, you know, just taking the ship from England all the way to to China took almost a year, right? Um, so uh-huh. they, uh, they they get all the seedlings there, and the uh, British botanist in India who was supposed to transport them from the ship to the plantation didn't follow his instructions, opened the terrariums, and watered the plants, and they all died. Oh. Um, and it was, a, it was a horrible failure. So he had to go back again. And he had to go to a different part of China because he had to pull this whole thing off again where they wouldn't know him and wouldn't recognize him. And the reason that English tea is black tea is because the first time he went and got green tea and he got the really, really good stuff, you know, and um, and so he couldn't go back to that area. So he went back to he went to Yunnan instead um, where they had black tea. And that's why British tea is black tea. So all of the Assam and everything that comes, huh. you know, that comes from uh, from the British plantations is all are all descendants of this Yunnan, <laughs> Yunnan black. Um, the second time they didn't open them in water and they followed in the instructions. And of course the rest is history that, you know, British tea became a thing and, um, you know, a, a pillar of the British empire. <laughs> Just, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. yeah. And, and is there more of this kind of information in your blog? Yeah. <laughs> Undoubtedly, there, there's a great book. Have about you actually Robert have Fortune. you written a book on tea? I have not written a book on tea, but it, it it sneaks into a lot of my fiction. But so the thing is, for me, the where it, where it ma- mixes with sensuality for me is that you know sensuality and sexuality are part of my daily existence and my daily life, and I don't separate them off to just the bedroom or you know like you know it's just it, I accept it as part of who I am as a human being, and so you know so to me, what you eat, what you drink. You know, all of that flows through you in the same way that desire and, you know, eroticism flows through you, right? And so if every day I basically, you know, have my little ritual of heating up my water and, you know, deciding which kind of tea am I going to make, you know, and it's like, what kind of a day am I going to have, you know, and that kind of stuff. And it's just tea is one of those things that partly because of the vast changes in economics between continents and whatnot, you can have a really amazingly good tea um, for not terribly much money. I mean, you know, 
for, for what it would cost me to get a really good bottle of wine, right, which, which we're going to drink in the course of one dinner, I can mm-hmm. get, you know, two pounds of really high grade tea leaves that are going to last me for, you know, 50 pots of tea. So, <laughs> you know, it's yeah, just, yeah. Um, you know, literally, I have to stop myself from buying tea as fast as I could, because, uh, you know, it goes bad on the shelf if you leave it for too long, too. Like, it can go kind of rancid, or it loses its character, you know, um, which is what you're paying for, right? So, it's like, you're going to buy a really good tea, try to use it within, you know, a year or two, at, the, at least, right? And um, so, now I have to have a sip of tea after we've talked about So, it. now I'm wondering, I'm judging myself, and I feel like I'm scum for having tea that's in, like, tea bags that are boxed up instead of having loose tea. Well, I wouldn't necessarily um, say that, because this is the thing that's interesting, <laughs> is that... Some of the box tea, you know, that you can get in bags is super, is fairly super high quality. Um, this is this is this is a funny family story. My brother um, uh, worked for many years in the marketing department at Celestial Seasonings, which you know yeah. is one of the classic supermarket teas that comes in a box in the bags, you know, and whatever. And it's and it's thought of as being a kind of old lady tea, right? It's like mm-hmm. you know your your orange zinger and your you know, it's the sleepy time, sleepy time, right? and you know yeah. all those and morning thunder, you know, and whatnot. And and they're they're a Colorado-based company. They're sort of a hippie company. And he's like, what people don't realize is that actually, the reason it has to be sold in those boxes and in those bags is that if we sold it loose leaf, like uh, like Republic of Tea, like the volume of Republic of Tea you get in one of those cans, he's like, we'd have to sell it for fifty bucks a can because <gasps> the quality of the tea is that high but people don't think of it as a high quality tea and he's like and we actually have to not make people think of it as a high quality product because they'll think it's expensive even though it's not you know he's he's like so we have to we walk this line where you know if you push forward too much the quality of your product average americans will think oh this is too expensive i can't afford it despite the fact that it's a dollar 79 a box or whatever it is you know <laughs> and he was like he was like i i started these marketing initiatives to try to do you know a loose leaf thing or a pre-brewed bottle thing or you know whatever and they were like no no we we can't mess with this image that we have that somehow we're that where's this we're an affordable product that everybody needs to have multiple boxes of in their closet and he's like okay so, you know, but it turns out that like Celestial Seasonings and Bigelow and, you know, a bunch of ones, a bunch of those, they're all actually sourcing really pretty high quality tea. And that, you know, uh, and the main question is, does it taste good? Do you enjoy it? You know, how does it, does it make you feel good? If you makes you feel inferior because you're worried that you're drinking something that's not good, well, you know, you could upgrade, but you, or you could potentially <laughs> just say, hey, you know what? I really like this box wine or this, you know, this box tea. Box tea is actually this way better Bordeaux. than box wine, um, is the thing. <laughs> so, you know, so yeah. there's really so no reason to adjust your mindset, unless it doesn't adjust taste your, good. Yeah. Adjust your self-image, adjust your thoughts mm-hmm. about tea, examine within yourself, and drink that celestial seasoning. I'm, I'm going to. Exactly. <laughs> but it's, but it's, I, I've been drinking Tazo. Now I'm thinking about switching over to celestial uh-huh. seasonings at this point. Yeah. Oh. Tazo's probably pretty good. I don't know that as that much about them. Um, I do know that the one thing you should, the one tea you should never drink is um, basically the, when you go to a hotel 
and you're in the hotel room and there's always like two little tea bags sitting there with the coffee maker. Mm-hmm. Never drink those because they've been, because they've been sitting there for a year and they were probably carried around on the maid's cart for a year before that. Um, al- also, also almost any, not all the time, but a lot of the time at um, like catering event events at hotels, you know, and whatever. And it's like, and they put out that like, display where it's like all the little bags of Lipton and then all the little bags of, you know, like they'll have a couple other different flavors or, you know, lemon lift or whatever. Sometimes they're fine, but sometimes they've been sitting in the back in the catering department of the hotel for over a year and it can literally be rancid. You know, it's like, oh. and it's like you, you just want a nice cup of tea and you're on the road because, and you're at this reception you don't really even want to be at and you put the hot water in and you go to taste it and you're literally like, what is this? And, you know, and it's just like, oh. Midori saved my life actually one time when I tried to drink the hotel's tea and I was literally like scraping it off my tongue. It was that bad. And I was just like, and then I'm thinking it's me, you know, I'm being such a prima donna because I'm so used to some better tea. And then she comes in and I was like, this was this was at a you know fetish event and she's uh-huh. and and she was like what is that smell and I'm like I just brewed a <laughs> cup of tea and she's like she like pours it out and then she's like I just came from England and I brought you something and what she had brought me was a gift box of uh, I don't remember which which British tea company it was but it was a gift box of and they were they were bagged but they were you know like fresh beautiful you know <laughs> and I was like you have saved me. <laughs> That's amazing. She was she was like I was going to wait till we got to your house to give this to you as a house guest gift but you know here but you need it now and I'm like yes I do. <laughs> yeah. So I always travel with some tea that I know the provenance of. <laughs> you know, That's travel with very, my own sex wise. toys, travel with my own tea. It's yep. Yep. You know. That way you can never be disappointed. It's interesting. I've had since I was a little boy I was very interested in both Chinese mythology and just the archetypes of the men that were in those myths and wh- whether they were a sage or a warrior poet mm-hmm. or, you know, what whatever they happened to be or a politician, it just seemed that tea was an essential part of that. And then mm-hmm. when I got into martial arts later on, I got into the weirdest martial arts, Bartistu, which is uh-huh. the like Sherlock Holmes martial arts. And it's very steampunky, which is kind of, I, I very much enjoy that aesthetic. Fantastic. And we had t- tea directly connected with martial arts. And I sort of wanted to branch off and talk to you about your martial arts experience, because I know that you're uh, at at least as of 2009, a second degree black belt in Taekwondo. I'm still a secondary black belt because uh, yeah, I've never gotten around to uh, never gotten around to getting my third degree, partly because I've been working on very, very creaky knees for the last 10 years. Um, But uh, yeah, the, 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 warranty ran out on my knees and then i just you know haven't gotten them changed out so um (laughs) my back my back and hips yeah 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 it's just you know the human legs and and hips are terribly designed honestly um you know Uh it's like we're gonna do this thing from the ground up there's so many things we do differently but um but that's the fascinating thing about the martial arts though too right is that it's all about biomechanics it's all about what's the absolute most efficient way that i can use what muscles and bones I've got to generate power, you know, and, and well, and to generate destruction in, in the end, right? Um, when it, when mm-hmm. my fist or my foot or whatever it is meets my target, right? Um, and, uh, I, it's, it's interesting because to me, the, you know, the whole thing with, with sensuality and owning your sexuality and owning your, 
your personhood and, you know, why you're on the earth and the things that make you you, the thing that makes you an into an effective martial artist, as far as I'm concerned, are sort of the same things where you are basically taking what you've got and figuring out the most efficient way to use it, you know. Um, and, you know, we're not all going to be as flexible as a ballerina and as swift as a, you know, whatever, or as strong as an elephant. You know, it's like, you can't be all those things. You have to, there are some trade-offs and ultimately you have to take what you've been given. You know, I'm not getting any taller at this point. I'm not getting any more flexible. Um, you know, and also I've been, you know, here I've been working around a chronic, you know, kind of chronic knee degeneration, you know, but, and yet how can I still make it work? And I think, you know, sexuality and, uh, you know, living in your body is all a part of that. So, mm-hmm. you know, to me, it's all, it's all one big ball of wax. Um, so, and I see a lot, of, there's a lot of sort of martial arts kink crossover. Um, oh, a ton. I mean, between chokeouts and like just, I mean, the things that have helped me the most are just realizing what I can do to take somebody down without much effort, oh, just yeah. using the tools that yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. And, and even, and even on the sort of, you know, spiritual side or the, you know, the emotional side that sort of, you know, um, that sort of, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're a bottom, you know, whether you're a sadomasochist, whether you're, whether you're, you know, you're really a masochist or not, there's still like some people enjoy the pain. Other people enjoy when the pain stops, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, there are people who are into the working out in the martial arts because they really are into the, you know, like pushing themselves and feeling that, you know, that feeling of I'm doing something physical that's difficult and I'm, and I'm overcoming my resistance to doing it. And then there are the people who are like, they like having worked out afterwards. They're like, oh, now I feel great. You know, both those people are satisfied, (laughs) you know? So, you know, there are people who hate spanking and being spanked, but they like humiliation and so they will put up with being spanked because that's how they get themselves to the place mentally that they want to go right and it's just right you know so checkbox yes no on spanking you know a lot of them are going to check yes right so but yeah that, that, that whole idea of sort of challenging yourself pushing yourself that transformative experiences you know um we live through our physical body you can't transform your mind and your spirit unless your body's going through it with you so you know now, speaking of your body going through it with you, I'm going to ask you one last thing and then like, <laughs> tell us where we can find you on the internet. Okay. Hot flash poetry. Go. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, yeah. So, <laughs> I, I am a perimenopausal woman now. And it's the pandemic. And everyone's having like these really intense graphic dreams. And they're remembering them. And I had this hot flash during the night, the other night. And was just like and, – and then I had a dream that I wrote a poem. And then I sat down when I woke up. And, you know, and I was like, did I actually write a poem in my sleep last night? And I just sat down at a, no- <laughs> you know, with a notebook and a pen and, and wrote it down. And I was like, apparently I did. Apparently I wrote wow. a poem in my sleep. Um, you want to hear it? Please. <laughs> <laughs> so I, it, this, this is my hot flash poem. It is a flash poem. The ghost of flame visits me at night. She lies down with me. I throw the covers off to make room for her, to give us space to breathe. She leaves at her whim, leaves me shivering. 
Yeah, it's a sensual poem. <laughs> I like it. I like it. The, the look it. in Sonny's eye when I said hot flash poetry, because like you guys are around the same age. Well, and she was okay. So th- when you brought this up, I was like, oh my goodness! I had a very. You were like pandemic and hot flash. I had an experience yesterday. I was watching John Oliver, uh-huh. and it, you know you'd have to see the episode. But at the end, he had a uh, rat erotica <laughs> and. And I started crying at the beauty of humanity and how the rodent porn, uh, you know, created a beautiful thing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And then I was just like, what is, why am I crying? And I'm like, it, I'm like, maybe it's menopause. Maybe it's quarantine. I don't know. <laughs> and when you said rad erotica, I thought you meant the hair metal band from the 1980s, no, not rodents. 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 <laughs> So yeah, yeah. So I'm oh, gosh. pandemic and uh, uh-huh. and menopause birthed some beautiful things. Oh, gosh. So thank you for that. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Well, so where can we find you on the internet? Oh gosh, you can find me all over the place. Um, uh, if you just Google Cecilia Tan, in fact, you don't even have to spell it right now. Usually, I come up. The problem is that Cecilia Tan is actually a really common name in like Singapore and a couple of pla- in the Philippines and some places like that. Mm. Um, but but most of the English-speaking internet, you're going to find me first. So um, so it's not that difficult. Uh, but that's why, for example, I'm not Cecilia Town on Instagram. I'm Tan underscore writer because some, you know, high school kid in Singapore has, has Cecilia Tan. <laughs> <You know>? um, <laughs> but especially you put in Cecilia Tan writer or something like that or Cecilia Tan erotica, you, you, will, you will find me. Um, in fact, what you'll find right now, if you look, is you'll find – a non-erotic product project I have going on that I'm kickstarting a book called the binge watchers guide to the Harry Potter films. <laughs> okay. Explain this. What is yeah, it? It so, sounds good. It, so it's literally, um, uh, it, it's literally a guided tour of the, the, you know, of the Harry Potter movies, the, the eight original Hogwarts movies. We don't touch fantastic beasts at all because I don't like them. Um, so the publisher is trying to sign up uh, people to write all different, things that are worth binge watching. So, um, you know, the X-Files or uh, The Wire or, you know, all, all these different things. She's she's thinking si- not just science fiction and fantasy, but, you know, other stuff that people might be into. Um, and I, of course, said, well, you know, if anyone's going to write Harry Potter films, it has to be me, right? And uh, and she was like, well, of course. <laughs> so, um, because I'm a huge, huge Harry Potter fan. And um, so I, I got to also sort of help set the template of sort of how these books work um and so there's just casting notes and stuff that you should know from the book or that you can ignore at your you know at your wish um if you don't want to know um there's you know not just recaps sort of everything but i thought what's a binge watcher's guide there should be tips on actually binge watching so you know like are you going to throw a binge watching party are you watching by yourself what are you what are the i've got recipes in there for like snacks that you can make that you know are harry potter themed foods and you know there's a chapter on how to introduce the films to kids. And I'm not used to writing something that is appropriate for kids to read. It's really interesting. Um, so like, this is, <laughs> this is one of my few, like all ages product projects I've ever done. <laughs> you know, So um, because I've written a lot of, you know, Harry Potter themed erotica. I mean, that's where magic university came from is, you know, my, my agent again was talking to me and she's like, what do you, you know, what would happen when they went to college though? And you know, this and that. And I was like, Oh, if you don't think I haven't already come up with a whole thing. And she's like, okay, write me those books. So, you know, 
those books are kind of my antidote in a way to Harry Potter, where I'm like, here's all the stuff that's not in Harry Potter. And, you know, my magic system doesn't work like J.K. Rowling's, but it's, you know, because I have a lot to say about sexuality, you know, go figure. I mean, obviously, my my protagonist, by the time he's a sophomore, is declaring his major in sex magic, you know. Um, He's trying to decide between sex magic or poetry, actually. (laughs) Because poetry (laughs) is is one of the magic disciplines, you know, so... um, yeah. Is Donald Michael Craig one of the professors? <laughs> yeah, it's just, I, I had fun. I said it at Harvard. So, you know, it's like literally right in my backyard. And, um, you know, it's the nice. Hidden Magic University at, at Harvard. And people are like, oh, yeah, that's definitely real. <laughs> nice. So really nice. quick, what house are you? Oh, in, in Hogwarts? Oh, I'm Slytherin. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I've got the Slytherin, uh, nice. like the Slytherin vans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought I was nice. a Ravenclaw because, of course, I'm such a nerd. Um, but really we're, we're in, 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 you know, science fiction fandom, it's like, we're all Ravenclaws and we have to subsort, you know? <laughs> so, um, and this, this was got driven home to me when I went to a Harry Potter convention, um, and thought I was a Ravenclaw and the people were like, no, you're very obviously a Slytherin. And I'm like, oh, but you know, but I'm this and I'm that, and I'm just being clever and I'm just smart. And then, you know, they were like, Hey, did you? You just spent 30 minutes plotting how you and your roommates can get more house points, you know, by Sunday. And I'm like, that's true. That's just, that's just smart. Of course, we're going to plan out what we're going to do <laughs> to maximize house points. You know, little, little things like that. But yeah, so they're like, have you noticed nice. that you're always the ringleader? You know, and you're like, yeah, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Um so where can we find the address to your Kickstarter as well? Um, where's the easiest way to find it? Um, probably. You know what? We can also put it in the show notes for this episode for yeah, those listening along. Show on, notes at AmericanSexPodcast.com. Yeah, if you find me on Twitter at Cecilia Tan, um, it's it's my pinned tweet right now. Um, if you go to CeciliaTan.com, you'll find a, a the first post in my blog is about the Kickstarter, you know, and whatnot. So it shouldn't be too hard to find. And it's, it's going cool. on until May 8th, I think it's our last cool. day. So, um, so if it's after that, then, you know, soon people will be, if people are listening to this later, then you'll, by then you'll be able to buy the book probably. But yeah. Cool. So awesome. Awesome. Well, Cecilia, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. It's been great talking to you. And we'll, we'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to American Sex. To keep up with Ken and I, we'll first make sure you watch our TV show, Sex with Sunny Megatron, on Showtime. Then visit SunnyMegatron.com. There you can learn more about us, read our blog, peruse our workshop calendar, or hire us. For what? Well, either for private coaching, or to book us to teach at your event or university, or as sex and relationship writers for your publication. Oh, and don't forget, we're on social media, too. I'm the super social one, so you can find me as Sunny Megatron on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, my YouTube channel, and a bunch of other places. But if you want to get me on Snapchat, you got to look for Sunny underscore Megatron, and you can follow Ken on Twitter at at tag PsyChicken. That's P-S-Y-C-H-I-C-K-E-N. Also, please support us by shopping with the affiliates and sponsors from our breaks. And if you contribute to our Patreon, we're going to love you forever. Well, we're going to love you forever anyway, but just go with it. Lastly, if you like this broadcast, tell people about it. Tweet it, Facebook status it, and rate it on iTunes and other platforms. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next week on American Sex.